Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world. The people, the relationships, the news, the politics, and the money that goes with being in this world. Stick around. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. So glad to have you here. Hot. <laughs> July 19th. If you're listening to this on the day this episode is released, it's just hot. I'm, I'm recording this the day before July 18th and just sweltering 100 day, 100 day, 100 day. I feel like every day is like at least 100 one degrees outside so hopefully you're staying cool staying in the ac getting some pool time drinking some good beers some good cocktails relax with the family this is the time to do it listen if you haven't had a chance already follow us on instagram at the nonprofit insider uh, we got some good things happening in instagram. i gotta i gotta post more i gotta be a little bit more active but you know there's so many things going on twitter's de- on a decline and everyone's like you know you should join on threads and i'm like i'm 35 i'm busy there's just a lot going on i'm not as young and i'm not jumping on as many social medias but you know what we, we might jump on threads here by the uh next couple of months we'll see how august goes follow us on instagram we got a good episode today listen 10 minutes from now i've got some thoughts on the four-day work week and the nonprofit space i think there's a little bit of opportunity with the four-day work week in the nonprofit world so i'm gonna give you some reasons why i think that's a possibility have some thoughts on that here in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, give or take, depending on how long I get through the news section, I, switching up a little bit. We've been doing a lot of nonprofit horror stories. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we have another episode of nonprofit horror stories coming at the end of uh, July, the last Friday of the month. That's going to be really good. So definitely stick around, stay tuned. Subscribe to us if you haven't already on Apple. Uh, Spotify, those are the two places we're at. We might try to get on Amazon, but you know what? I'm not in a rush. We're going to slow roll it. So that, that'll be good. Uh, but one of the things I want to do today, actually, I want to do a little bit of a book review. It's been a while. Episode six might have been the last time we did a book review. And I have a really good one. I have a book, The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age by David Callahan very, very good book. So stay tuned for that. I'm gonna give a little bit of a review in 20 minutes. I'm surprised more people in the nonprofit space haven't talked about this book because for my money, granted, I'm in the nonprofit space, but for me, this book is, is a top 10 book. So stay tuned for that. But first, the news. A little bit of an older news story coming at you all because, listen, just because something is new doesn't mean it's news and just because something a story is old doesn't mean it's not news and so i have a little bit of an older news story this is this is actually from 2022 from november 2022 and you all know listen i like going to the associated press they have a really good section of their news where they talk you know sports politics business, science, health, climate, all, all the key things. Uh, but they have a really good little section on philanthropy and they talk and share a lot of stories around volunteers, 
fundraising, nonprofit issues, a lot of things we're going to talk about here in a little bit, work from home, labor, the economy, just the industry as a whole. So they, they have some really good writers that give me some really good insights. So I was on the AP news section for philanthropy many months ago at the turn of the new year, and I saw this story, and I could never find the time to sneak it in. But I was like, I know I want to sneak it in because it's a subject that's right up my lane. And so this is from 2022, and the title of it of the article is Raise App Lands Investment to Connect Volunteers, Nonprofits. And the author of it is Glenn Gamboa. So shout out to Glenn. He wrote a really good article back in November 14th, 2022. And in the article, the author shares the story of Carl Nisbet. He's a football player at the time of this. I think he just signed, had just signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think he might, well, let me go through his wiki real quick. I gotta look it up. I think he now plays, okay, so yeah, he still plays with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's a linebacker out of Westchester, Pennsylvania. Shout out Westchester. And the article talks about how he had as a, as a player just as a citizen in society, had a desire to create a different kind of social media app, one that, according to offer, celebrates positivity and community. And it's 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 an app called Raise. That's spelled R A Y Z E. I'll talk about that here in a little bit. And I'm just going to go ahead and read a quick little snippet from the article where it says. Uh, Raise is, quote, a new app that links people to each other and to nonprofits that appeal to their interests or are based where they live, end quote. And so the basic gist of the app, and I downloaded it back, I think it was back in February, maybe March or something like that, right when I started this podcast. On the app, it basically allows you to connect with nonprofits in various ways. It's like a community building type of app where you have the ability to go to this app to find volunteer opportunities. You have the ability to go to this app to do donations to nonprofits that you support or believe in. You have the ability to simply connect with other nonprofits or nonprofit leaders for really whatever you may desire. And looking at the app, I appreciate anybody that has a desire to uplift, empower, and better connect volunteers in the nonprofit space. You all know I I have a deep love affair with volunteers and the aspect and community building of volunteerism. I think it's just something that has an ability to do some really, really good things um, in times that are sometimes very difficult. So when looking at this app, I was able to download it. I've messed with it a little bit. They don't have as many opportunities in my area. You can tell they're still new. They're still growing. But they've got some really good backing. And in the article, they talk about how they got an initial funding, because that's what the article is about, lands and investment. They got initial funding by an organization called Financial Finesse Ventures. I looked them up and saw some of the other work they do. So they, they're definitely in that sphere of angel capitalism and that type of stuff of providing funds to people that are trying to, you know, make money and change the world. To be honest with you, and I just one, I just find the, the name so interesting, financial finesse. <laughs> because when I think of finesse, I'm like, you're not gonna finesse me out of anything. But 
they they said that they typically give between five hundred thousand and one point five million dollars for initial investment. So clearly, he's got some support, and you can tell when reading the article that the the people at Financial Finesse Ventures believe in this app, believe it where it can go. Uh, so definitely something to check out if you haven't had a chance. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. So you get the ability to kind of see and learn a little bit more about it. I, for me, I kind of I'll wrap it up like this. I believe that this Raise app, which is an interesting name, when I think Raise, I think of Razor's Edge. I think it's now called Blackphone, the the nonprofit software uh, program for people that are raising money, or I think of Raise like raising money, and you can donate on this app. But I'm not sure if that's going to be their big thing. They could change directions anytime so that donations are the thing that they're really trying to do. But this app could be very, very similar to like the Nextdoor app. I know a lot of people that have the Nextdoor app for all types of reasons. Lost cat, can't find my dog. Hey, I was driving and I picked up someone's wallet. Hey, did you hear that noise in the neighborhood? All types of things. I don't have the Nextdoor app. But I, I did for a while. I used it for quite some time. And so I, I think it could be something very similar to the Nextdoor app where people have the ability to just go into the app, see what volunteer opportunities may be happening, uh, and just do it that way. We know Volunteer Matches is a really, really big website in terms of people going to learn about opportunities. But I don't, I, I don't know if I've ever been on their app before because I'm so used to their .com desktop style. Um, set up, but this is being marketed as an app first, website second. So th- this could really, really be big. We'll keep up with it. We'll see how this goes over the next couple of months, the next couple of years. Life is all about balance or finding balance where we can in our lives. And most of us know that. We know that spending 10, 11, 12 hours a day on our work, uh, on our jobs can be detrimental in other aspects in our lives. Now, of course, if you're trying to be, you know, uberly successful, you hear about the stories of Jeff Bezos and how much time he was spending a day trying to build an Amazon. Look, it's worked for him. And we know a lot of folks, if you're trying to t- get into business, if you're trying to get, uh, as an entrepreneur, you know, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and they say, you know, I dedicate my life to this. There is no balance. I wake up thinking about this and I go to sleep thinking about this. But we know balance is very, very important. And look, here, here's a story about I me. Mean. Just the other day, I'm talking to my son. He's seven. And one of the things is that we were in the car and I had just picked him up from a camp. He goes to a camp here uh, through the city of Albuquerque. Nothing fancy. That's like it's an elementary school. They've commandeered elementary school. They take it over. And he's in one of those like trailers outside. So it's nothing fancy, but it gives him the ability to be around other kids because in the summer, it's just him 
and me and his mom. And look, after a while, we need a break. He needs a break. So it's an ability for him to be around other kids and be around other young people like in their 20s that are leading these camps. And so I told him the other day while we were in the car, I said, hey, guess what? I got you two more weeks of the camp, of the summer camp that you've been going to. He immediately starts wailing in the car. I don't want to do it. And I haven't done anything this summer. And the summer's almost over. And I'm doing nothing but camps and camps and camps and camps and camps. And it, it was just so funny because it had me thinking about when I was young, you know, in the 90s, when summer rolled around. I just stayed at home and watched TV all day. And I'm not going to lie. By like the second week, I hated it. I'm watching reruns of Jerry Springer at, you know, 1 o'clock in the afternoon because the cartoon's in at 8. It wasn't like we had Netflix or anything like that. So it's just all summer. I'm just like watching old Jerry Springer or Maury Povich episodes. And it's just like, this is terrible. I'd much rather be in camp. But as we're sitting in that car yesterday, it really had me thinking about how balance is so important so for him for this seven-year-old he was doing way too many camps and for me as a seven-year-old I did I think one camp a a year and it wasn't like an overnight camp it was like you you went to the YMCA and you were there for you know six seven hours Uh, but for the most part it was just a lot of staying at home while my mom was working uh, spending some time with my dad you know here and there but nothing too crazy And it had me thinking about, there's a lot of talk right now about work from home. We're coming out, you know, separating more and more from the heights of the pandemic. And there's more and more talks about work from home. We see it with some of our biggest industries, the Disney's, uh, the flight industries. Uh, We see a lot of organizations, banks especially are really big at it right now of, hey, glad you like to work from home get your ass back in the office. Even if it's just two days a week, we want to see you back in the office. And I'm not going to talk about work from home on this episode because it's something that's forever. It's evolving so fast right now, even as we enter the fall of 2023. There's a lot of talks about work from home. I actually want to talk about the four-day work week. And one of the, the, the aspects in the nonprofit space that I have talk to other folks about and have had the experience and the ability to connect with other folks about is the idea of the four uh the four day work week i said i think i said the four hour week a second ago but before the pandemic really got started i was actually hearing a lot of folks in the nonprofit space really start talking about the idea of a four day work week and what that would potentially look like and how a lot of organizations are pretty much dropping fridays from their repertoire because it gives a lot of folks in the nonprofit space the ability to do their work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and still have the ability to enjoy themselves on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. A lot of those conversations pretty much stopped once COVID started, and rightfully so. And then the conversation went from having a four-day work week from working from home. And it's funny how major life circumstances can really change the direction of a conversation. And when you have something as big as a global pandemic, that's going to totally shift the way people have talked as it relates to what work and labor really looks like. And for me, when I think about the four-day 
work week, it really brings about a better sense of balance for the nonprofit industry. It, it really gives a lot of folks in the nonprofit space the ability to enjoy more of their time, especially when considering the pay of the industry. When you look at the average uh, take-home pay of many people in the nonprofit space, $55,000 a year, that's not a lot when compared to some of the for-profit entities. And so as the for-profit space has, has a lot of conversations of work from home, a little less of the four-day work week, I'm not seeing that as much as I saw pre-2020, but a lot of the for-profit world is having a lot of talks of, I don't want to go back into the bank. And work, you know, in the office, not talking to folks. If I'm all, and then I hear a lot of folks are saying I'm already going into my office and I'm still on Zoom calls anyway. So what's the point? And look, we acknowledge here at the Nonprofit Insider, there's a lot of privilege that comes from working from home. There are a lot of folks, and I don't have the exact numbers or percentages from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But there are a lot of folks that simply because of the nature of the job whether you are a carpenter, a HVAC uh, professional, whether you are a lumberjack, whether you do manufacturing to wonder, you know, there are a lot of folks that simply cannot, just because of the nature of their job, do work from home. And because of that, they're probably going to see more folks try to push the four-day work week because if you absolutely have to come in to an office, to a building, to a work site, you see this a lot actually in construction as an example, then yeah, you can't work from home, but maybe the four day work week is one. But the nonprofit space is one, in my opinion, that gives you the ability to honestly do both. The pay in the nonprofit space is not as high as many industries in the for-profit world. And the work that's done in a lot of nonprofit space does give you the ability to work from home and to come in less days out of the week. And I think I said there's a lot of privilege in this space because we still we know there's a lot of professionals, undergraduate degrees, graduate degrees that are really what we're talking about when we start talking about the four-day work week. But it's one that needs more balance. And look, I, I have a couple of takes on this. The first, I'm actually surprised. Seriously, I'm actually surprised that more people in the nonprofit space and more nonprofit leaders at a lot of top nonprofits, whether they're Fortune 500 style nonprofits, or if it's just executive directors at your local nonprofit in your city or county, I'm surprised that more of those folks haven't talked or pushed more on the idea of the four day work week. Now, with anything, you're never going to get 100%. You're never going to get across the board, 100 out of 100 on these types of things. There are always going to be certain industries and certain groups in particular industries that are going to gravitate towards a four-day work week. If you work with clients a little more exclusively, if you work in education a little more exclusively, um, there could be, just because of the setup of the work you do in the nonprofit space, there, there simply could be a setup where it's advantageous for you, your coworkers, and or your clients to have the ability to come in five days a week. But I think that percentage is a lot smaller than we're led to believe. I think there's a little bit of a veil on people's eyes because 
a lot of the nonprofit space, and this, this is my theory on it, a lot of the nonprofit space wants to seem legitimate or legitimize themselves in comparison to government work or in comparison to the for-profit space. And one of the things you can do is mimic a lot of aspects of those two particular worlds. And, you know, I mentioned this on my last episode. It's like the three-legged stool, uh, nonprofits, government, and for-profit. That's what I always call it. And if you are the type, and I think it's like, and you actually see this a lot in the nonprofit space already. Here's what I mean. Here's an example. How many people in the nonprofit space say, I think we need to be more like the for-profit space in the way we conduct our management of money, in the way we conduct our budgets, and the way we conduct our times. We could have a whole episode about that, the ideas of is the for, should the for-profit space mimic more of, of should the nonprofit space mimic more of the for-profit space? We could talk about that for days and days on end. But it's clear that there are a lot of folks that are in the nonprofit space that want to see more of that. And it goes back to if that's the type of mindset you have, then it just it doesn't just reverberate as it relates to money or budgets or efficiency. That's the word you hear a lot. It also translates into other things, the dynamics of uh, how we interact with coworkers, the dynamics of how we talk to our clients, and the dynamic of how many days per week we should be working in this particular industry. So I think a lot of the nonprofit space says we we want to we want our big we we want our power brokers and board members to know we 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 take this seriously and we come in five days a week. We want our mega donors and backers to know. We take this seriously, so we come in five days a week. But I would imagine, and again, I don't have the numbers on this. I need to do a little bit of research. But I would imagine there's about 80, if not 90% of the nonprofit industry would be better off moving towards a four-day work week. And look, there's some smarter people out there. You know, I'm just a private liberal arts college, you know, graduate. No no, no fancy degrees over here. (laughs) But I would imagine if you really take a look at the industry as a whole, and I know there are some people that have done this. If you look at the industry as a whole, the nonprofit is prime. It's ripe for the ability to move to a four-day work week. One of the things is when 80% of the money that comes into nonprofit comes from government entities and the other 20% comes from individuals, foundations, or private donations, because your money flow is a lot different than the likes of Chipotle or Bed Bath & Beyond. I know they're going under. Uh, Pepsi, uh, Anheuser-Busch, they're in a lot of trouble right now. Because the money flow is different in the nonprofit space compared to much of the for-profit space, it gives you the ability as an industry to say, hey, listen, one of the things we want to do for our workers and for our clients is take is, is take the path of a newer model of doing a four-day work week. That doesn't mean your nonprofit has to only be open four days a week, but that your workers only do four days a week. And that, that of course, compares and contrasts to lights of government, where a lot of government entities, we know there are a lot of them are going to be closed on Sunday and Saturday. So that's, for the most part, locked in for a lot of government, unless it's essential. But then, for a lot of government 
entities and agencies. They have, of course, more holidays, which is really nice. When a lot of federal employees get furloughed, they get back pay, which we know is really nice. And then for a lot of government uh, agencies and entities, they provide services to so much of society. Theirs is a little bit more tricky in that respect. And that's why I go back to saying the nonprofit space is one of the few industries that I believe has the ability to move to a four-day work week with, uh, with not having a lot of negative repercussions or consequences on the industry as a whole, on organizations as a whole, or on employees as a whole. For this week's episode, I wanted to jump back into the rapid fire books. I got a lot of great DMs and messages uh, from the last rapid fires. With the first rapid fires, rapid fire books uh, segment that we did for Susan Cain's Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. A lot of you all like that. Really appreciate it. So I wanted to, to jump back in and do the second one here on the nonprofit insider podcast and one of the things for a lot of you as we're getting more followers we're getting more listeners the download numbers are going up so a lot of you all are are liking it appreciate that very much one thing to know about me is i absolutely love libraries <laughs> uh so much so that my second ever girlfriend i met in a library yeah it, it, that's how much i love libraries and for me, I really started. I, mean, I was I've even when I was young, growing up in Philadelphia, I went to libraries all the time because one, my mom and my dad, they really encouraged it. Uh, but when I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, it was a time when the internet was really starting to pop off. This was back in like two thousand and three, two thousand and four. Uh, I was just starting. You know, I was like a freshman. Uh, sophomore in high school, the internet was blowing up. And you would still, even at that point in time, you'd go into a grocery store and there'd be a AOL CD, right? America Online and the grocery store next to the Kit Kat and the Reese's. And so I used to, as a person who, who moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, I was living with my mom. Dad was out of the picture. My brother was still back in Philadelphia. He's so much you know older than me, 16 years older than me. I was living in Charlotte and I found such a refuge in, in libraries and it was a way for me to escape and learn about the world and use the internet in a time where my seven-year-old son, he, he's, he's only known the internet. This was like a brand new thing for me. So I was going to libraries all the time. So I have a deep uh, affection for libraries, librarians, and the system of it. And one of the ways I have, at least in my particular space, discovered new books to really read and new authors to really learn about in the nonprofit space. Because again, I don't, I haven't read a, a fiction book since I was in high school. So one of the ways I like to, to learn about new nonfiction books is just going to the library and checking out staff recommendations or looking at some of the new books. And so I went to my, to my library, I, I live in, in New Mexico now, I went to my local library, bought my card, obviously, all that jazz to pick out some new books. And I just looked at some of the staff recommendations. And one of the books that was recommended by one of the staff members is a book uh, by David Callahan called 
the cheating culture. Why more Americans are doing wrong to get ahead. And so I picked up the book and I loved it. Read it, probably took about two, three weeks, something like that. And the book quickly shot up for me to be in a top 25, maybe top 30 book. And, and the book just talked about basically how Americans are cheating and not just on taxes, cheating and 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 jobs and relationships, uh, cheating themselves. And it's a really, really good book. I'll probably end up, it'll probably be a rabbit fire books here in a little bit. But I really love the book. And so I said, you know what? Let me see if this author has any other books. And sure enough, he did. And this other book he wrote in 2017, quickly, I mean, it shot up, honestly, to be in a top three, maybe even top, maybe top five, but probably a top three book in my uh, reading history. And it's by David Callahan. And the name of the book I have actually here in front of me is called The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. And this is one of the few books, as you, as you, if you've listened to my last episode where I talked about uh, Susan Cain's book, this is probably one of the few books that I've ever read that I said, I'm going to buy this because I want a copy to have in my house. A truly amazing book that I'm surprised I haven't heard more individuals in the nonprofit space really talk about. And in the book, David Callahan basically talks about the intricacies of the way money flows in society, specifically in the philanthropy, philanthropy nonprofit space, right? Not always nonprofits. He talks a little bit about how money flows in campaigns, how money flows in NGOs, how money even flows in the government space. He has some examples of individuals that have given money to governments to help in various industries or particular social um, spaces. But the book overall talks about how we have some of the richest individuals of our time that are giving money, basically like part of the 1%, are giving money and how they are using that money to gain influence how they're using that money to gain power, how they're using that money to shape the world in the way they want to do. And that's nothing new, right? That's that's a concept as old as time, dating back to kings and queens in parts of Eastern or Western Africa, Greece or Greek, uh, industries that are have been developed in parts of the world of the China of China and dynasties in that particular space. So that concept is nothing new, but he kind of wraps it and structures it in a way, specifically within America um, and parts of the Western world, anyway, of how individuals with a lot of money will use that money to mold the world in the direction that they want to mold. And this is one of the the most common examples that many of us are familiar with is the story of Alfred Noble, who many of you may know as a Swedish chemist and engineer who invented dynamite. 
and he was and and as the the stories and history shows he was getting a lot of flack for creating dynamite as a really destructive power that was used in uh, wars that was used in conflicts and so one of the things that alfred noble and i'm sure uh, an amazing team of uh, advisors around him said is we are going to create something called the nobel peace prize and the nobel peace prize i think started in 1901 maybe 1906 i don't know right offhand but how he was able to use that money he had gained from the development of various products and specifically dynamite to change the perspective so now when you hear nobel you think of nobel peace prize alfred noble there's a more positive connotation to his name, despite creating something that, you know, has been used for nefarious purposes. And so in this book, David Callahan talks about how this is nothing new. We've seen the Rockefellers have done it. Carnegie, think of Carnegie Hall, right? Uh, the, the, the Fords, how they were able to use their money, uh, the Vanderbilts, the largest home in America is in Asheville, North Carolina. I used to live in Asheville. The largest home, George Washington, Vanderbilt II. How they were able to use their money and use that despite maybe oppressing unions, despite oppressing uh, various parts of labor or industries and controlling so much of the money that flows through the world. They would use their money to give back to arts, to give back to social causes, to change the direction and the outlook that society would have on them. And so in this book, he, he talks about how Elon, the Elon Musk, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Bill Gates, how they are able, the Jeff Bezos to a little bit of a degree, how they are able to use their money and how they're using it in political campaigns. Think of the Koch brothers, how they're using it in medical research. And not just the big fish, right? Not just the ones that are worth billions of dollars, but the ones that are worth, say, 500 million. The ones that are worth 100 million. How they're able to use their money to change the direction of education, medicine, government, politics. And it's just one of the... The few books I'm surprised I haven't heard or seen more individual in the nonprofit space really talk about, uh, I would recommend it. If you are in the nonprofit space, if you do fundraising, if you do anything with accounting, if you do anything money related, this is the this is the number one book you need to read. And so I want to end with a quote right now before we get out of here. Uh, that he says, and this is on page eight, because there's so many great parts of this book that I could talk about forever. I want to just kind of go straight to the beginning. So on page eight of the book in, in the prologue, he says, and I quote, today's big philanthropy is arising in an era when the wealthy already seem to control so much territory in America whether it's politics through their campaign contributions or ownership of the tech and media companies that shape our culture. Now, through their giving, they are wielding even more power. And in many instances, today's philanthropists are zeroing in on precisely those problems that our political system has fumbled or shy away from. We need people with big plans, a drive to make a difference, and the money and power to do so, 
even if they sometimes get behind bad ideas. We want philanthropists to have lots of freedom to develop what Warren Buffett has called society's risk capital. The givers can attack challenges with a freedom and agility that public officials could only dream of, which is one reason why philanthropy has been called society's passing gear. Again, just a truly amazing book. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, I'll put it in the show notes. You can check it out. David Callahan is one of the uh, authors I would love to have on the show as we get a little bit more attention, get more followers, and get more listeners to download. So go ahead and check that out, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.